0: Hello, and welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I'm Lori Flores, your host for this episode, and I'm very happy to welcome Ana Raquel Minyan on the podcast today. Ana is Assistant Professor of History at Stanford University, and Ana's book, Undocumented Lives, The Untold Story of Mexican Migration, was just published by Harvard University Press in 2018. In the 1970s, the Mexican government acted to alleviate rural unemployment by supporting the migration of able-bodied men. Millions crossed into the U.S. to find work that would help them survive as well as sustain their families in Mexico. But as U.S. authorities pursued more aggressive anti-immigrant measures, migrants found that their labor was needed in both places, but neither country made them feel welcome. Undocumented Lives draws on private letters, songs, and oral testimony to recreate the experience of circular migration. While migrants could earn for themselves and their families in the U.S., they needed to return to Mexico to reconnect with their homes periodically. Ironically, the U.S. immigration crackdown of the mid-1980s disrupted these flows, trapping many migrants in the United States. Welcome, Anna. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Lori. So... Anna and I have known each other for many years. We've seen each other through grad school, our respective grad school careers, and now our early careers um, as professors. And as a way of beginning, um, Anna, I'd love for you to introduce yourself a little bit more to our listeners by talking a bit more about your background, both personally and professionally. So can you tell us where you're from, where you ended up going to school, and what your path has been to the career that you have now?
1: Yes. So I was born in Mexico City, and I grew up there. I eventually moved to the United States and ended up going to the University of Chicago, where my undergraduate advisor was Professor Maine I. And she was the first person who got me to think about questions of migration. She wrote one of the most important books nowadays about migration called Impossible Subjects. And she made me realize that the question of Mexican migration had been not fully explored in U.S. historiography. I returned to Mexico after my after receiving my undergraduate degree and then I decided that I did want to pursue a career in history so I came back to the United States where I did my graduate work at Yale University under the direction of Stephen Pitty and George Chauncey who together helped me to think about how questions of social history the history of sexuality chicano Chicana history and migration history all came together
0: Mm-hmm. So in your time at Yale and combined with your previous experiences in Chicago, how did you settle upon the research topic that eventually became this book? Why did you want to write this book and, and what was going on in your head about maybe what other people had missed in previous studies of Mexican migration and what, what did you want to say that was different? Well, there were
1: many things that I thought needed to be said. The first thing was as a person who grew up in Mexico, I cared a lot about what was happening in Mexico that was pushing or encouraging so many people to head north, especially to come to a place where they were considered illegal aliens. How come things hadn't why were things so poor in Mexico that people couldn't stay in their hometowns? Why did they have to risk their lives at the border? So that was one of the questions that I wanted to figure out that I didn't think we knew much about. The usual question was always like, oh, it's economics. But economics is not enough to explain migration, because, of course, there are other possible solutions that people could take. For example, people could have a revolution. Instead of migrating. So, how did migration become the option to which people turned at times of need? I was also interested in what the Mexican government was doing in terms of migration. Given that such a large proportion of the Mexican population now lives in the United States, in the state of Zacatecas, for example, which is in the central plateau region of Mexico, two thirds of all people who were born in the state now live in the United States. So I was wondering, what is the Mexican government doing and how is it reacting to this migration and to this this group of people who are Mexican citizens but are living abroad? The third thing that I was interested in was questions about sexuality. Um, A lot of people think about how women are affected when crossing the u s mexico border that's an issue that historians have recently started to take up. But when I was doing research in Mexican towns, what I realized was that queer men were not migrating as much as their heterosexual counterparts were were doing. so I started to be interested in how someone's sexual and gender identities, not just being a man or a woman, although that too affected whether they stayed. Or went to the United States, and finally, I was interested in how the loss of both countries affected how people moved or not or ceased to move.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to talking more about each of those points in more detail as we go along um, in the podcast. But I wanted to go back to the the geographical focus of the book, because you mentioned the Central Plateau region. Did you decide to focus on that region of Mexico because other studies hadn't really studied it in the ways that you would have liked to have seen? Do we focus more on the border states of Mexico than we do in that central region? Well, I think
1: nowadays we're starting to focus in Mexico in general and in different parts of Mexico. But when I started my study, there were very few other studies that focused on what was happening in Mexico at all. It was as if Mexico, Mexican migration was a question of immigration, but never one of emigration. What happened in Mexico? It was always what happened once people reached the United States. And it was with this belief that they stayed here or were were then deported. But then what happened after their, their deportation was not known. So I would say all of Mexico was sort of unknown or what was happening in all of Mexico was sort of unknown. The reason that I focused on the central plateau region is because even though we have this general idea that most migrants come from Mexico's northern region, actually, the, historically, um, the, the area with historically high rates of outmigration is the central plateau region, the states of Zacatecas, Michoacán. Guanajuato, and Jalisco are the states with the highest rates, historically the highest rates of out-migration.
0: What impressed me most about the, and you say this at the beginning and the end of your book, is how many oral histories you based this research on. You did over 250 oral histories, which I find so impressive. It's amazing. Um, how, did you expect oral histories to be such a huge part of your book? Um, And as follow-up to that question is, what would you, like, what do you tell your students now about the value of oral history and and how it can be done really well?
1: So when I started the project, I didn't know exactly what routes I was going to take, but I found that to find the intimate stories, part of what I wanted to do was not just write an organizational history and a history about, for example, the immigration and naturalization service, but a history of migrants themselves. And to find out about the instances, not only where they had been apprehended and deported that were caught on official records, I had to talk to people and get their oral histories and perhaps their personal records as well, that that was a way to get at their inner lives, which I was very much interested in doing. Um, So oral histories rapidly became a very important part of the project, especially on the chapters that deal with social history and not so much with political history. Nowadays, I encourage my students to do oral histories if that's something they're interested in doing and if they find that that's the best way in which they can access the information that they need. Part of what I tried to teach them how to do is how to approach people so that people are comfortable. Um, a lot of people are really scared of, of, talking to people, but what I found out doing this project is that people have a real need to talk. Um, a lot of the oral histories in which, which I conducted ended up with people crying and saying, you know what, this is a really traumatic thing that happened to me. And I, and just being able to talk about it eases some of that tension and just lets me, it was a little bit therapeutic for them. And even when it wasn't, people really enjoyed talking about them and really got into it. So it, part of what I wanted to do is to is to tell students that people want to tell their stories, but also that they have to be respectful to people and how they tell their stories. So rather than push, so rather than having my students push their own ideas onto those of the people they're interviewing to have the people they're interviewing tell their own stories the way they want to do so rather than through very strict and narrow questions.
0: And that plays into one of the primary points of your book, which is that U.S. immigration policy has really ignored the personal stories of migrants. We've operated for so long on myths and stereotypes and, generalizations that really do not take into account the the circular migration the more um, intimate personal reasons that people move in the first place
1: that's correct so i found a lot of a lot of misconceptions are are well known or we didn't need to interview people to know them so for example it is very well known that we're migrants have often been accused of draining US welfare resources and actually they put more into the state than they take out. So for that you just need to look at the data that already exists in terms of taxes and the migrants usage of public services. Now what oral histories allowed me to do is to look at other misconceptions that exist and and to dig in deeper. So for example with this case Of the well of welfare, even though we knew that migrants were putting more into the system that we're taking out, what the what the oral histories interviews allowed me to see is that migrants were in a way creating their own welfare state that functioned both for communities in Mexico and for communities here. And not exactly a welfare state, but organizations that worked in the absence of a welfare state. So for example, in Mexico, the government was supposed to give people, according to it, the Mexican government's own stance, it was supposed to give people medicines and access to healthcare. But actually, it failed to do so. And so, migrants managed to create a lot of organizations that organized events to raise funds to send the money to Mexico's poorest communities so that everyone in that community. Would have access to health care. In other words, they created a type of extraterritorial welfare state that provided the aid that people needed when the government failed to do so. So not only was it about countering the myths and stereotypes that existed, but adding nuance to it. That's what the oral histories allowed me to do, is to add nuance at different perspectives about ideas of welfare that I wouldn't have been able to find out about without this type of research. Uh,
0: Your first chapter takes us back to the 1960s. Um, You start by um, telling us about the end of the Bracero Guest Worker Program, which comes to an end in 1964. And you say shortly after this that the, the Mexican government... Uh, really changed its stance on how it was handling the reality that uh, people were migrating to the United States. Can you talk a little bit more about how the Mexican government changed its tune on that? Yeah, so
1: as I was saying earlier, part of what I'm really interested and I was always really interested in was how was the Mexican government dealing with the rapid departure of its citizens? And what I found out was that up until the mid-1970s, Mexican government officials had viewed emigration, the departure of citizens, as negative. They had considered that a large workforce in Mexico was indispensable for Mexico's economic growth. As such, when people left the country, they were hurting Mexico's potential to grow. Now, in the 1970s, Ideas about population growth started to change, and Mexican government officials started to view the departure of citizens to another place, to the United States, not as draining the labor force of the country, but rather as a way of providing jobs to unemployed people. In the 1970s, Mexico started to see a huge recession. Um... President Echeverria, who ruled from 1970 to 1976, was um, forced to devalue the peso and ask for assistance from the IMF. Inflation levels rose, unemployment rose. Meanwhile, the United States was telling Mexico, "We you guys have too much popul- too much population growth. This is the cost of poverty." So, with all these economic problems and ideas about population growth, Mexican government officials switched their stance and started to view emigration as a potential solution to Mexico's economic problems. In other words, people leaving Mexico became a way to partially solve the problems of unemployment that the country was facing.
0: And meanwhile, on the other side of the border, What was the climate in the United States in the 1970s? Were people already panicking about undocumented migration or did that take a while to develop? Well, it sort
1: of developed in the 1970s as well. This is what's so interesting. It's interesting is that in the 1970s, we see the Mexican government, Mexican government officials start saying, well, let them go. Letting them go will solve our problems. And meanwhile, U.S. officials and many U.S. citizens start to say, we don't want Mexicans here, especially we don't want, quote unquote, illegal aliens. And why did this happen? Just like in Mexico, the United States was also facing a recession. Unemployment was growing. Inflation was growing. And blaming migrants for these problems became very easy. So, the 1970s represented a time when both Mexico and the United States rejected the presence of Mexicans or of some Mexicans in their home country.
0: It becomes a double exclusion. And people who, who feel they belong to nowhere, to neither country.
1: Well, it was primarily men. It, during this period, um, most of the people who were migrating were men. So, when the Mexican government starts to look positively on emigration, the people that they start to encourage or to support their emigration is men, because men are the traditional people who are migrating and the people who are migrating during this period. Um, Meanwhile, in the United States, it's primarily these migrants who, it's these migrants, these working class migrants who come without papers, who are being rejected. Because at, at that time, by by the 1970s, the primary way that working class Mexicans could reach the United States was to do so illegally.
0: One thing from your second chapter that I found really fascinating that I didn't know about before was this um, immigration operation called Operation Jobs. Can you talk a little bit about that and when it was and what happened? So Operation
1: Jobs was this... in the middle of the crisis, the immigration officials and the attorney general tried to come up with various solutions from the seventies to the eighties um, to to expel migrants from the country. And one of these operations that they create is Operation Jobs. So, in Operation Jobs, the idea is that immigration officials recognize that. Immigrants are not taking the jobs that most U.S. citizens want. So they finally acknowledge this. Even though in the public rhetoric, they're constantly saying, well, let's deport the immigrants because then we will open up jobs for Americans. In Operation Jobs, they acknowledge, look, most immigrants are taking jobs such as being buzzboys or in the service sector, making sandwiches, being gardeners, that most Americans don't want. But there are a few jobs that Mexicans are taking that Americans would want. So they decided to go after those higher-paying jobs. And what they did is they rounded up, they went to job sites that they considered to be well-paying, they rounded up the immigrants there, and they deported them. Soon enough, American citizens were, in fact, taking those jobs. But after only two months of operation jobs, the New York Times did a survey and found that most Americans had left those jobs and undocumented immigrants had again taken them. When the New York Times interviewed the employers as to why this had happened, the employers said Americans found these jobs too low paying and also um, too hard for them to do. They were just not interested in doing them. So they soon left the jobs and they were open for undocumented immigrants to take again. Mm.
0: Yeah, I never knew about this operation, but I feel like in the way that you you tell the story of it, it certainly brings to mind a lot of what's happening today. You also talk about separation of families that was going on in that time, too, that today it's not just in our contemporary times that we're discussing this issue, it was happening back then. Parents were being separated from children and um, partners from each other. So um, it really shows the long, the long history of this happening.
1: Absolutely. And when we talk about family separation nowadays, we're speaking specifically about detention centers and whether the immigrants who are coming are being separated from their children at detention centers. But family separation in terms of immigration has had a long, long history that occurs not just at the moment of entering the country and being detained, but also has historically occurred at the moment in which one parent or one family member is deported while the other one stay. And family separation has also occurred When one family member is able to cross the border and others aren't, and so they have to live apart. One of the most traumatic set of oral histories that I conducted was that with the mothers of immigrants who said, my child has been in the United States since 1987 or 1990 or 1988, and they won't be able to return to Mexico to see me. So I will die in Mexico while my child is in the United States and I will die without seeing him again. And they would just start crying, of course. And why could the child, who was now an adult, not return to see their aging parent in Mexico? Because if they returned to Mexico, they would not be able to cross the U.S. border again. So they were basically stuck in the United States. Mm
0: hmm. Yeah. And this feeling of being stuck or being constrained, um, you move on to talking more deeply about that in chapter three, in which you discuss um, the the more intimate lives of migrants and the pressures some people feel to migrate, the pressures that those left behind by migrants feel to uphold a certain image and and lifestyle and routine in Mexico. Um, And you talk about four groups in particular. The pressures on um, heterosexual men to migrate, um, the ways in which gay men did not migrate as much as we think they might, or for the reasons that we think they might want to move to the United States. Um, And then women, straight women and lesbians. So these four groups had very, very different experiences related to undocumented migration, but all felt a similar sense of being spatially constrained. Can you Go through each of those four groups and explain a little bit about their circumstances.
1: That's right. Part of what I was trying to show in that chapter is that even though we always think about migration as a phenomenon that opens up people's spaces and that creates a sense of cosmopolitanism, even while doing so, when it came to undocumented Mexican migration, people often felt their sense of space constrained by migration, whether they migrated or not. So let me go through these different groups and talk about it. So the first group is heterosexual men. Heterosexual men were the primary migrants. They were the people who were truly coming and going in the years between 1965 and 1986 between Mexico and the United States. And what would happen was that migration became such a way of life in Mexico and in Mexican towns that men's friends, their wives, their family members would pressure them to go to the United States. Many men described that they started to feel that their space of their hometown was one that seemed to be shrinking in around them and squeezing them out, that they could no longer stay there. Some said that their wives basically pushed them out. The other said that they would have felt cowardly but and ridiculed by their community if they didn't go north. So people, men, felt their sense of space constricted in their hometown. Now, once they migrated to the United States, they also saw their sense of space constricted. So even though they got to experience a new country and eat different foods and see different sights, their ability to move was also very much restricted. In the 1970s and 1980s was a time when immigration officials were having a lot of raids within within cities and in the countryside. So people were scared of leaving their house. Men described that they would go to work and return home as fast as they could, and that if they knew where the, where Immigration officials would linger. They would try to avoid those streets. In other words, they would create what I describe as a movement map, in which they knew exactly where immigration officials were likely to be, and they would avoid those streets and move rapidly from their jobs to their homes. And then they said they wouldn't go out until late at night when they knew that immigration officials had retired for the for the day. Um, so in some ways it felt that their sense of space in the United States was very much limited just like it had been in Mexico now the other group um, that I talked about was women women unlike mm, married men married heterosexual men stayed in Mexico and often they felt pressure to stay in Mexico so in some ways it was like as if A wall was constructed around the side of their hometowns and their country that didn't allow them to leave. In part, their communities told them not to leave because they needed to raise children. Their communities also told them not to leave because going to the United States was extremely expensive. Not only did people have to pay for very expensive smugglers, but then life here was very costly. And so the idea was that one person should go and make the money while the rest of the family should stay rather than raising the children in the United States, which was much more expensive. And so women were told, you know, it's your job to raise children, you can't leave. At the same time, they were discouraged from migrating because of ideas of sexual respectability. Um, There was a widespread belief in Mexico that if women migrated, they would become much more promiscuous and lose their respectability. So husbands dissuaded, often prohibited, their wives from migrating. And finally, sexual abuse at the border played a huge role in preventing women from migrating. So women felt that they had to stay indoors, in their hometowns. But not only that, as migration, as the migration of men increased, they also saw their sense of space become increasingly diminished because from the united states men started to fear that their wives would cheat on them while in mexico so while they were away while the men were away they started to fear that their wives back in mexico would have the opportunity to have an affair and so they started to control them how would they do that often the women started to live with um, her The husband's parents, and so the parents themselves, the woman's in-laws, wouldn't let her go out of the house too much. Often the men would say, don't go out of the house too much because if I hear that you're roaming around town and socializing around town, then I will stop sending remittances because I know you'll be cheating on me. And so women responded to these increasing pressures not to leave the house by staying indoors more and more. Some women even described feeling as if they were imprisoned in their own homes because they couldn't go outside out of fear that their husbands would find out and stop sending remittances or that gossip would spread that they were being unfaithful to their husband, a gossip that would often generally reach the United States. So both men and women start to see their sense of space restricted. Now, queer folk in some way actually are the ones who don't see their sense of space restricted. We would generally assume that queer men would jump at the opportunity to go from small town Catholic Mexico to a more liberally, seemingly liberal United States, but what I actually found was that most queer men did not want to migrate and managed not to do so. So, unlike heterosexual men who were pressured to migrate, queer men did not have wives and children to support. And so they did not have the economic need to go to the United States. But much more surprising, what I found out was that queer men could make more money in their hometowns than either women or heterosexual men. And that was because they could take jobs such as being florists or working in restaurants that heterosexual men didn't want to take because they thought that they would lose their masculine privileges and because um, they wouldn't be employed for that. So for example, the idea was that heterosexual men would molest female patrons at restaurants. So restaurant owners preferred to hire gay men to serve women or to serve at restaurants in general. So gay men had access to jobs that heterosexual men didn't want and couldn't attain. Not only that, but they were paid more to do them than women. So for example, florists would tell me, you know what, because people think that I add this extra creative touch to the flower arrangements that I make, I get paid much more than women. So they would take these stereotypes and use in some ways their masculine privilege or their male privilege and get paid more than women and use their female or feminine privilege to um, get the jobs that men were not taking. And as such, they were able to make a very decent standard of living in Mexico, especially As heterosexual men started migrating more, sending more money back to Mexico, the demand for flowers for restaurants increased. So they were able to stay in Mexico and they had no interest. They thought they had a very sexually fulfilling life in Mexico and did not need to migrate.
0: And for um, lesbian, the lesbian community in in Mexico, did they experience any different relationship to migration than... Uh, straight women?
1: Lesbians were the group that was hardest to find because I found a lot of women, lesbian women, who said that lesbians tended to migrate more and some who tended to say that they migrated less or for different reasons. So finding a common denominator was harder. But what is true is that lesbian-like straight women had to fear sexual abuse at the border, and so many tended to refrain from migrating, just like their like straight women did just because the dangers were in fact much higher for them than for heterosexual men.
0: Right. So in the next chapter, you talk about how, you know, with these very difficult circumstances that some people had to experience, um, they sought out different ways to feel connected to other people, to each other um, and to create these, foundations of emotional support that would help their migration experience seem a little less um, burdensome or isolated or lonely. Um, And you talk about these networks of emotional support, both in Mexico and in the United States. Um, Can you give us a couple of examples of these networks that people formed with each other?
1: Yes. So um, in Mexico, what I started to find is that there were very much difference depending on where people were from, so in the state of tacatecas while men migrated, women often managed to create very strong alliances with each other and family members started to help each other so for example women's mothers in law um would take care of the children while the woman um if the, if the if the mother was working or if the mother was busy in Michoacan, what I found was that this notion that mothers and, and wives had to be constrained prevented them from forming strong friendships with other women. And so we didn't have this community that in Zacatecas was very much supportive, this community of women that supported each other throughout, through the pain of having their husbands be far away and having the fathers be far away. What I did find throughout was that not having a father or a husband present over the years became much more accepted. So women in the 1950s and 1960s, whose husbands migrated in the 1950s and 1960s, tell me that they had a really hard time because even if some other men were migrating in the town, Um, Many weren't. And people in town would look at them weird, would look at them as unwomanly, like, why is your husband leaving you? By the 1970s, migration had become such a widespread phenomenon that no one had this qualm. People, the woman I was interviewing said that everyone they knew had their husbands abroad. Um, It was almost expected that if you were going to get married or if you were going to date, the man was going to live part of the time in the United States. So in that way, the community and, and the way of relating to migration changed. If you think about it, once migration and the idea that the man is now going to be present in the family becomes so common that it's normal, um, it means that the very meaning of family, what family is supposed to mean, changes. It's no longer about proximity but it's about these transnational links that exist, and that um, and this circular migration and way way of this way of life that involves circular migration. Now, in the United States, men also formed very strong um, communities to support each other. Think about it; they were in a community in a country where they were viewed primarily as "quote unquote" illegal aliens, where they didn't know the language. Um, where they were racially discriminated, and so creating solid communities was very important for their well-being. And often they tried to create communities that reminded them of Mexico. Communities were also indispensable just to get to the United States. So, for example, um, the community of Las Animas in Zacatecas started um, started as a homogeneous, united community where most people lived in the ranch in the small town of of Las Animas. Then a group of animeños, people from Las Animas, moved to Tijuana, and then more and more animeños started to move into the United States. But as as animeños started to go to the United States, they would often stop at the houses of their fellow animeños in Tijuana in order to regroup and think about how to cross the border. The Animeños in Tijuana knew all the smugglers and knew how it was safe to cross the border and would often help each other. So these communities, these networks that were created created were indispensable both to get to the United States and also to have, um, to have a community and a sense of belonging once migrants arrived in the United States. But what this chapter also shows is that migration became normal, not only for the families and the communities that stayed in Mexico with this notion that, of course, the father, the husband is going to go. But these communities that was, were formed in the United States, help people feel that they belonged in the United States as well. They, they allowed them to create a sense of belonging in other ways in, in other words they normalized the process of migration and it's this normalization of migration that means that even when migration later on becomes much harder people will continue, despite the hardships of migration, to come to the United States because migration has already become a a normal process, and especially undocumented migration has already become a normal process, and one of the processes that help people think that that is the way in which they can achieve a sense of belonging both in their communities, in their families, in Mexico, and in the United States.
0: Yes, and one way, uh, an additional way that they were trying to assert a sense of belonging and a sense of citizenship is migrants in the United States started forming these hometown clubs and associations to give back to the communities of origin that they came from and also to assert their um, political voice in some ways to a government that up until that point had not really paid much attention to what happened to them. Um, And I remember you know, just from the writing dates that you and I would have sometimes in San Francisco that you've been working on this chapter for a really long time about the the hometown clubs. Can you talk a little bit more about what they were and what they meant? Yes, yeah, the that is one of the
1: chapters that I'm most dedicated to. So you're absolutely right, Lori. Um, so what I found is that starting in the early 1960s and especially developing into the 1970s, Mexican migrants started to create these club that we now called hometown associations, but at the time they called club sociales. And what these club sociales were supposed to do was to raise money for migrants to raise money in the United States to send back to Mexico for the betterment of their communities. So they started in this um, in this little restaurant called Las Delicias in 1962 when a group of migrants were getting breakfast. Um, And they started talking about the elderly in their hometown. Um, Their hometown was Guadalupe Victoria, a small, small town in the state of Zacatecas. And they started talking about all the needs that the elderly had. And they decided to start raising funds to send back to Guadalupe Victoria to help the elderly. So they started doing things like organizing a little picnic in Lincoln Park where they would cook all the food then sell it and buy it themselves at the event to raise money to send back to Mexico. And little by little, they started supporting the elderly in the town. Um, after that, um, people from other communities started to see this example and to replicate it. And the clubs developed very, very fast to support different communities in Mexico. They got to such a point that they started to rent this huge building um, called La Casa del Mexicano in the United States, and they would have massive parties every Friday, every Saturday, and every Sunday. And in these parties, they would have about 350 attendees. People would arrive around 8 p.m. They would end around 2 a.m. And as the party would roar, people would attain again the sense of community and belonging, but they would be paying for alcoholic beverages. And uh, through this money, they managed to raise enough funds to create dramatic improvements in many hometowns. So let me give you, for example, the case of Guadalupe Victoria. By 1987, the Club Social Guadalupe Victoria had raised enough money to um, help improve the church, bring in um, portable water to the rancho. Think about it, portable water is such a necessity and they managed to bring it. They introduced electricity to the town, which it didn't previously have. And they helped to build a health care clinic, which was important because people were getting sick and there was just not enough enough roads to get to a bigger town. So people were often dying. So this health care clinic was indispensable. So they basically reconverted the town through the money that they were sending from these clubs that they were racing. Think about it. These are migrants who were often making less than minimum wage. They were getting money together to send to Mexico, and they changed their home communities dramatically. They changed how Mexico looked. People in Mexico, and for example, the town of Guadalupe Victoria, could no longer walk through town without thinking about migration. The paved streets reminded them about the money that the Club Social Guadalupe Victoria was sending. When they turned on their light switch, they were reminded about migration. Everyday life became imbued
0: with this. Uh, these contributions the and this incredible way in which with these migrants were able to have uh, a presence still in their home communities and even a political influence in their communities and the way that they were shaped. Um, at the same time, what's happening in the United States is an increasingly tighter uh, border policy, stricter. Um, or discussions of stricter immigration laws. And your last two chapters are about two different things. Um, The sixth chapter is about some very brave migrants who, at the same time that they might be participating in these um, networks of support and financial giving to their homes in Mexico, are also trying to assert some rights in the United States. Um, And then your last chapter takes us to the end of your, your time scope here, which is 1986 with Irka. Can you talk about those final two chapters in tandem with one another and, and take us up to the end of the story that you're telling here?
1: So one of the things that I was interested in was not only in this translocal and transnational activism of social sociales, but in how migrants were themselves involved in improving their lives in fighting for rights in the United States. We often knew that you know Mexican American organizations had fought for Mexicans. But what I wanted to know was how Mexicans themselves were fighting for the rights here despite their undocumented status. And I found that they did so in many ways. One of the most important ones was through labor. Um, So in the 1970s, a lot of migrants decided that they needed to start unionizing. But how to go about it was extremely hard. And one of the solutions that came about was to organize people in Mexico, because most of the migration from the years between 1965 and 1986 was circular, was to organize people in Mexico... And then um, have them come and strike in the United States. So in the fields of Arizona, for example, in the citrus fields of Arizona, most workers lived in the groves itself because they just were too scared to leave the groves, because if they did so, they knew that immigration officials would be roaming around the areas. So they lived in the groves themselves. Now, organizing them was almost impossible because these were private properties. So when union organizers wanted to, to approach them, they didn't know how. There was this one man, Lupe Sanchez, who had originally migrated without papers himself, who thought it was indispensable to organize this group of undocumented citrus workers. So what he did was he went to workers' hometowns, which dropped often in Nayarit, somewhere in Guerrero. He organized them there. He told them, look, the conditions at the citrus orchards are deplorable. You don't have portable water to drink. You are living on tree branches. You're not getting paid enough. You don't have access to health insurance. Let's organize a strike so that you can improve your conditions. And even though workers had to put a lot of effort into it because there were no strike funds, Lupe Sanchez had no strike funds, and the organization he created had no strike funds, 300 workers agreed to go back to the groves of Arizona to strike, and they were eventually successful. So union organizing happened in Mexico, and then the strike happened in the United States. And it was the first time that undocumented migrants managed to assert that they deserved labor rights and they could strike even though they were undocumented. It was the first strike that was successfully won by a group of people that was outwardly undocumented, that that was one of the things that they stood by. Um, During these years, migrants also won the right for children to attend public schools. In Texas, the Texas State Legislature um, ruled during these years that Texas school districts could start to charge children, undocumented children, for attending school or outwardly denying them the right to attend. Children who attended... Um, school at the Tyler Independent School District um, I sought out help and ultimately m- managed to get the help of MALDEF, um, which is a very important Mexican American organization. And together they had this lawsuit against the superintendent of the school. Um, the law school was called Plyler Vieau because the children, of course, didn't want to release their names since they were undocumented. And they ultimately won the right for children, no matter what their legal status in the United States was, to be able to attend school public school for free. And so even as nowadays, undocumented students are fighting for the right to attend university for free or at the cost of, of at, at paying state rates and being able to get financial aid, they are able to attend public school thanks to the successes and to the efforts of migrants and Mm Mexican-Americans during these years through Pilar Vido. Now, the last chapter that you talked to, to me about was like, well, even as all these efforts were happening in terms of Mexico and the United States, in Congress, a very different story was occurring. Since the early 1970s, since since 1972, um, U.S. congressmen had tried to pass a law that would make it illegal to knowingly hire undocumented immigrants. So that would impose sanctions on employers who knowingly hired people who were in the United States without papers. By the 1980s, when Reagan comes um, to the presidency, he comes with, um, with this notion that it's important to protect the nation's borders. And the idea of protecting the nation's borders becomes a rallying cry around the issue of migration. And finally, employers know that they're going to lose this battle. Of course, employers were supporting undocumented immigrants. They didn't want to be penalized for hiring undocumented immigrants. And they were very happy to abuse and to use the work of undocumented migrants who they had to pay much less money to. Um, But by, by the 1980s, they realized that this law is going to pass. Meanwhile, Tupano organizations, Mexican-American organizations, um, start to become much more allied with undocumented immigrants. They start to support their costs in a way that they hadn't really beforehand. So by the mid-1970s and the 1980s, Mexican-Americans start to increasingly support the costs of undocumented immigrants, and they start to lobby in Congress in favor of undocumented immigrants. So, as a result of the forces that want increased border security, the ones that want employer sanctions for hiring undocumented immigrants, and the voices of Mexican American groups that want to legalize the migrants that are already in the United States, a compromise law comes about in 1986, which we know as the Immigration Reform and Control Act. And the, this law, has four main clauses. One is that it legalizes um, all undocumented immigrants who had been in the United States for over five years, so since 1982, or who had been in working in agriculture for over 90 days. And this is basically to satisfy um, the demands of Mexican-American groups that are pushing to incorporate undocumented migrants into the community. They also implement a new guest worker program. So in 1964, the United States had ended the Bracero program, which had been a a huge um, guest worker program that you write a lot about, Lori, by which Mexican workers could come, work in the United States legally for short periods of time, and then return to Mexico. In 1986, they decide to expand and to create a new um, guest worker program that's going to be divided into the H2A for agricultural workers and H2B program for non agricultural workers. And that is, of course, to satisfy um, the demands of employers that they need more workers, that they still need to bring undocumented workers. Employer sanctions are also passed. And then one of these ideas is border security. So, part of what the Immigration Reform and Control Act does is that it increases the fortification of the border. And this takes us to my last chapter, which is a chapter about how things have changed after the passage of the Immigration Reform and Control Act and how if my whole book has been a question about where do people belong, people who are pushed by the Mexican government and the U.S. government who are sort of unwanted in both and families that are dispersed across nation states but continue to see each other through circular migration, what happens? And part of what I know is that for most people, the circumstances of non-belonging increase, except for one group, and that is a group that managed to legalize their status. So so the, the about 2.3 million um, undocumented Mexicans who had lived in the United States for over five years, as I said, or who had been farm workers for over 90, managed to become legal citizens, legal residents, and ultimately many go on to become citizens. And they Describe that their life completely changes after they're able to do so. So, for example, people who had not been able to buy a house beforehand, because even though they had the money, they were scared that if they were deported, they would lose their investment, are able to finally buy a house. They're able to get better jobs. They're able to not be intimidated when demanding for better wages. So their lives change, but they describe that even as their lives change, they continue to be haunted by their experiences as undocumented migrants. One woman, for example, described that she sometimes continues to wake up with fear of being deported, that that fear has never fully gone away. Another group that is impacted by this Immigration Reform and Control Act is that of the undocumented immigrants who were not there in 1986 or or who did not legalize their status at the time. And they have seen life become much, much worse because while between 1965 and 1986 was a period in which workers could come and go, the fortification of the border meant that undocumented migrants could no longer go between the two countries. So they had an option. They could stay in Mexico. But just because the United States, just because the U.S. Congress had passed ERCA and the border had become more militarized, it didn't mean that the conditions in Mexico that had propelled them to go had changed at all. In fact, the culture of migration had already been established. And so Mexican men continued to come to the United States. But now they simply refrained from going back to Mexico because they knew that if they went back home, they would not be able to come back into the United States or it would be very, very risky to do so. Now, rather than coming and going, men started to encourage their wives and their children to come north with them. So, we actually see the rapid rise of undocumented migration because while beforehand we had a population that was coming and going and that was only composed of men, after 1986, we start to see a population that's composed of families and that is staying to live permanently in the United States without being able to go back to Mexico. The other group um, that is very much impacted is the group that starts to work as H2 workers. Um, and I actually found some of their stories to be the most distressing because we don't know much about this new guest worker program, but they describe how exploitative the program actually was. Um, for example, when workers come to the United States as H2 workers, um, they are not guaranteed a certain amount of hours. So even though they have to stay with the working for the same employer that brought them, and they have to pay for housing and for food in the United States, which is much more expensive than in Mexico, they are not guaranteed enough working hours. So women, for example, often agree to have sexual affairs with their employers in order to be able to give to be given more hours of work. They also experience highly controlled scenarios where their employers can control every single aspect of their lives. They actually face much more exploitation than undocumented workers because they can't switch employers. And why do they submit themselves to being h to workers? Well, they do so because they want what undocumented workers had earlier which is the ability to come back and forth between Mexico and the United States. Many of them have family members in Mexico, and they don't want to just come and live permanently in the United States without being able to see their loved ones back home. So instead, they subject themselves to this program that does allow them to come back and forth between
0: the two countries. And this is where you bring in the phrase cage of gold, right? To wrap up the book and to show people how a more militarized border and stricter immigration policies, they keep people in as much as they keep people out. Or maybe even more so, it traps people inside the United States who might very well just want to go back.
1: Absolutely. At this, Up until now, we have seen that um, the fortification of the U.S.-Mexico border did not have the effect of... Diminishing the number of people who tried to come into the United States, but it has prevented people from leaving the United States. So it actually had the opposite effect than the one that was inten- it, it was intended to have. Um, and people do often feel that they are trapped in the United States. The term the cage of gold was popularized by a song by Los Tigres del Norte called La Jaula de Oro, which means the cage of gold in which this father is singing a corrido, a a folk song, um, about his life story. And he says, you know what? I came here with my children and my wife and they don't want to return, but I I can't come and go and I feel like I'm stuck here. And even though this cage is made of gold, the United States, there's more money. It doesn't stop being a cage. It doesn't stop preventing my movement. Um, And again, My whole book is about these spaces that prevent and allow people to move. How can people, are there more free through their migration? And what I've noticed is that after 1986, people feel very much stuck in the United States, often while having family members still in Mexico who they can't go back and see.
0: Thank you so much, Ana, for joining us on this podcast today and telling us about this incredibly Informative, passionate, uh, illuminating book. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Lori. Thank you all for tuning in to New Books in History. I'm Lori Flores, your host for this podcast episode, and we've just heard from Ana Raquel Mignan about her book, Undocumented Lives The Untold Story of Mexican Migration, recently published by Harvard University Press. I invite you to like and follow our New Books in History social media pages on Twitter and on Facebook. Thank you for listening.